Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to the Good Trouble Podcast. We're very excited to be back with our latest episode. My name is Reginald Williams, repping Mass Budget. I'm one of your co-hosts here with Mr. Gregory Ball. Hello, 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 Reggie. How are you feeling today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm very excited for today's conversation. How are you? I'm okay, man. Like, you know, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I feel like uh, the, I'm ready to start off the new year in, a, in the right way. I got the right mindset. You know, I feel like I'm trying to get my 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 health in order. And I mm. think that's right in line with our conversation today, because I think somebody is going to that we're talking to today is going to kind of give us some information to get us on the right track. Amen. Amen. We're very excited to have Dr. Maisha Mentor Jordan, MD, MBA, President and CEO of CareQuest Institute for Oral Health here joining us. Dr. Maisha, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm great to be here with both of you today and happy new year to you both and excited to get into the conversation. Excellent. So Maisha, can you tell us a little bit about the about your background in the work of CareQuest? Sure. So um, again, my name is Dr. Maisha Mitchell Jordan. I'm an internist by training. I also have a business background. Uh, let's see, originally from New York and uh, really have always been focused on healthcare for underserved populations and how do we uh, really redefine health so that it is inclusive of all aspects of a, of a patient's and a person's body. Um, prior to becoming the president and CEO of the CareQuest Institute for Oral Health, I was the president and CEO of the Dimmick Center, which is a community health center in Roxbury that's focused on underserved populations and bringing holistic and comprehensive healthcare to individuals most in need. And while I was there, I did a lot of work on behavioral health integration. Um, there was such a gap in an understanding of how we can treat a person holistically and be inclusive of their behavioral health, inclusive of any needs where they may, that they may have in terms of substance use disorder. So really thinking about healthcare and how we can ensure that people have access to healthcare that is reflective of their needs has always been a priority for me. Um, and particularly, I'm thinking about that in the context of people who are marginalized and often don't have a voice at the table. Um, so I was there for 12 years and then moved to CareQuest Institute for Oral Health about two years ago. Um, this is a new company that was launched following a transaction with a private equity firm and a dental benefits company. But what it really did lift up was a nonprofit that's focused on ensuring that individuals have access to oral health. Um, there is such a significant need across our country in terms of people having access to oral health. And oral health doesn't mean bright, white, bright, shiny white teeth. It really means the ability to eat, the ability to have good nutrition, the ability to um, engage socially because your dentition is, is healthy. And so, um, and I saw evidence of that when I was at my community health center and seeing small children being put to sleep because they had cavities. You know, you don't think, you think about how does a two-year-old get a cavity filled? You have to put that child to sleep. You have to give them anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And that risk of anesthesia um, to a small child is something that was totally preventable. So I started doing the work there and understanding the importance of oral health and prevention and education within the community health center context. And then I'm now able to do that on a larger systemic level working across the country um, educating parents, educating patients, um, but also working with key stakeholders in different um, healthcare institutions and insurance companies to really think about how we can more broadly incorporate oral health into the fabric of our healthcare system. So, so 
Um, I was just about to say doctor. You told me to call you Maish. Yes. <laughs> Maisha. So um, before we get into it, further into the work and getting more information about that, I wanted to know, how does a New Yorker end up in Boston, of all places, and, and working <laughs> here and staying here? Because I know... <laughs> Because you know we have we have that contentious feel between New Yorkers and Bostonians sometimes. <laughs> so what was it that made you uh, connect yourself and stay in, in the city? That's a great question, and I would say kind of reluctantly so. But you know, I I went to Brown undergraduate medical school, so I was in Providence, Rhode Island for eight years, and so I got to experience Boston um, on a on a you know small scale during that time. And really, at the time when I made the decision to move to Boston, I was in Baltimore. So my plan was always to go further south, to be oh, wow. with my people, to treat my people as a physician. And, and get some heat. And, yeah, and get some heat, get warm. Um, but I, you know, I love the time that I was at Hopkins where I did my training and went to business school. But I, I didn't feel the passion and connection to the people that I, that I intended to treat. Um, and so when the opportunity came up for me to become the chief medical officer at the Demick Center, it was really about the people and so and the services and understanding a different way of practicing in community health that was so incredibly impactful that um, despite the cold, despite the sort of the um, all of the stories that you hear about Boston, mm-hmm. um, and I think the other significant thing at that time was Deval Patrick had just come into office, mm-hmm. um, okay. and so that for me was an indication that uh, Boston was changing and Massachusetts was changing. Um, and so, you know, we made the, the, the decision to come up because of the opportunity that the Demick Center presented, but also because I had the sense that um, Boston and Massachusetts were shifting. Um, and since I've been here now for 14 years, it's been an amazing journey. I, I think um, I, I'm so glad that I made the decision to come here. I've been part of this transformation that we've experienced clearly a long way ago, um, but it's a, diff- a very different place than what it had been. Um, and I'm so uh, fortunate in terms of the way in which my career has progressed here. I think when you're when there are fewer of us, you have sometimes more opportunity. And so I've been able to take advantage of that. But also my goal is also always opening up the table to others. Who else can I bring to the table? Who else can I bring into the conversation? And so I've been blessed to be able to do that in a number of ways um, that make me feel grateful for, for being here and being in Boston and raising my family here. Um, but it was, it, you know, I would never have imagined if you had asked me back then, would I ever move to Boston? It would have been like an expletive and then no. <laughs> but I'm happy well, to be here and, and I absolutely love our life here. Well, listen, so then that is wonderful. And I, then the question then becomes for me is, the path that you chose in terms of education and your career, you know, you you're you have the MD, but you're also um, you have the the MBA. What was what made you kind of um, combine those things? Because quite honestly, either one of them, in most people's minds, is is more than enough. But you wanted extra homework, apparently. And just decided to keep going. Yeah, you know, for me, I had graduated residency and I had started to practice um, as a hospitalist, which basically meant I was taking care of patients in the hospital. But I realized in that time that I knew nothing about the business of medicine. Like I had, I was mm-hmm. trained to be a fantastic doctor. I love my training. I, I love connecting with patients, but I didn't understand how decisions were being made within the hospital, like how resources were being allocated and why. And I realized that that was a significant gap. And so being there, I was able to start taking some classes 
And what I was learning in the classroom, I was directly applying to the services that I was in charge of running within the Hopkins system. And so it became this like active learning experience. And that was before kids and before marriage. And so I had the time and space to really focus in on like, how do I learn this? How do I make better decisions about my own career, about the program that I was running? And so I kept taking classes. And then at one point, it became clear that I had enough credits um, to pursue the MBA, to do the capstone project. And so that's how it happened. Um, and I've always in real time been able to use that. My, my goal is to create or support programs that serve the underserved, but make them sustainable. Because I think you do so much damage when you create a program for people in need, and then that program goes away because of lack of funding or lack of sort of strategic thinking. And so the business background allows me to make sure that whatever I do becomes sustainable and, and that I can understand the business of it as I'm creating these programs, understand what key stakeholders are thinking as they do a financial analysis. It helps me to bring those pieces together and I think has made me um, more successful in my career at Demick. Um, and certainly more successful in my career with CareQuest Institute for Oral Health, because I'm always thinking about sustainability. Uh, and that MBA really helped me to be able to do that. Now, how eye-opening was that, that was, was applying that business background to the world of healthcare when you started to think about um, underserved communities? Because I would imagine that a, a, a portion of the reason that we're underserved um, in some time, in some cases, is the the business side of of of, of yep. medicine. Yeah, it, it was. It's it's always. It, and whenever I encounter conversations where we're deciding about resources, or it's it's eye opening to me how important it is to understand that and how to understand how do you fundamentally shift allocation of resources by creating the right business plan. So it was incredibly eye-opening, then continues to be now in every instance where I'm part of a decision-making body, um, because you have to like, and I realized this early on in my community health center career, the moral case is one piece of it, um, but that yep. only gets you so far. You really need the business case to match with the moral case. Like we need to do this because it's important. And, and I think we, our, our whole community and ecosystem has shifted in terms of the diversity, equity, inclusion discussions, because it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also a business case behind diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think that's what's moved the business community in more deeply embracing those notions because they see if I have a diverse set of individuals around the table, I'm, my business will do better. And so it's the same sort of principles that apply um, across all different fields um, is that understanding of what does it take to be able to move allocation of resources by creating a business case that focuses on if you lift up the underserved and you improve the health of the underserved, you, we improve our entire healthcare system. So it's, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the message and that's the, the work that I've been engaged in. And I think my business background, I know my business background has helped me to be able to do that and to be in those conversations and bring that angle to them such that we can become more successful in, in those programs and initiatives, um, really having the impact that we need them to have. Well, there's one. Uh, thank you so much, because I there's one aspect of the business that of 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 oral health that Reggie and I were just discussing before we jumped on with you. And the one thing that we didn't understand, because as both of us as adults, our lives, we've had fortunate enough to have jobs that provided health care insurance. But 
dental insurance or dental coverage was a separate line. And like mm-hmm. sometimes depending on where, what company you're at, it may even be a separate company. Oh yeah. Why <laughs> are those things separated? This is, we're yeah. literally just, we're like, okay, your mouth is in your body. Right. Yeah. Why are they separated? And we were, we started to come up with our hypothesis. We're like, well, maybe it's because it's two different schools, but in, in the, the practice is broken there. And that's why it's, Stay separated. Yeah, we, we're like, wait a minute. We're about to talk to somebody who can actually answer this question. Why yeah. are, they, are they separated? You know, it, it really it goes way back to when mm-hmm. these trades began, right? And so you had um, at one point in history, we had providers that would do everything. We had our general practice providers, but then as different trades began to sort of refine their scope and their expertise it became separate, just like behavioral health is separated, right? So behavioral mm. health is separated, eye care, optometry is separated. So you, it's just these different trade associations that have over time developed their own practices and scopes of practice. And we haven't had this overarching approach to healthcare. That's changing now. We see much more integration happening. We see particularly, I always go back to behavioral health as a really great example of that. But it used to be that, and still in many instances, um, I have a community health center lens where things are much more integrated. But if you go to your primary care physician and you're also seeing a mental health uh, provider, they're completely separate in most instances. In a community health center, they may share records, but it's still part of your body. And wouldn't your primary care physician want to understand what medications your behavioral health provider is prescribing for you so that they have the holistic picture of who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. But it really is based upon, you know, trade associations and professions growing their own sort of specialty and not wanting to, and carving out that niche and then how revenue happens, really wanting to hold on to that revenue and not share it. So it's, it's a capitalistic mm-hmm. sort of approach to healthcare that's starting right. to shift as providers and others are becoming much more integrated and under and responding better to patients and what their needs are. Um, but we're still very much behind the ball in that. And oral health care providers, dentists, et cetera, um, often see themselves as surgeons or as, you know, hands-on practitioners. And they are very much protective of their revenue streams, of their place in the medical space. And most in most cases, there's no communication between a primary care provider and an oral health provider. They don't share medications. There's no incentive at this point in many instances for them to work together. Now with value-based care models coming onto the scene, there's more of an incentive to say, well, if I'm responsible for the total care and cost of a patient, I might want to know if they're seeing a dentist, if they're going, if they're getting these expensive dental procedures, or if they're going to the emergency room because they have oral health needs that aren't being met. And therefore, it becomes more important to the provider to say, I need to reach out and understand who are the other providers that are part of my patient's medical history and and really work on coordinating care. But it's something that um, that's part of what we do as as the CareQuest Institute for Oral Health is create those proof points. Also, Mm -hmm. there's not a deep understanding of the correlation between oral health and medical health. So diabetes, as an example, if you're a diabetic, you have a higher risk of having oral health disease. If you are a pregnant woman, you really need to make sure that you're taking care of your oral health because that can impact your baby. You can have a preterm birth, meaning you can have your baby too early. You can have complications from that. There are infections that occur in pregnancy that can impact your baby. So we don't talk about that enough. And part of what we do as the CareQuest Institute is put that information out there 
And we also talk about health equity um, it, because it's also, it shows up in every aspect of medicine and it also shows up in oral health. We know that black adults are 22% less likely than white adults to have a routine dental visit. 68% of black adults are more likely than white adults to have unmet dental needs. And we know that Latino or Latinx adults are 52% more likely than white adults to have difficulty doing their job because they have poor oral health. Wow. So we're bringing all of that information out there. So that as we're thinking about healthcare transformation, we need to include oral health in that discussion because it has an impact on our overall health. And there are also deep health inequities that are, that are manifesting itself within oral health that we need to also address as we think about designing a better healthcare system for all. And, uh, you know, Maisha, when, when you talk about the statistics of the inequities in healthcare, you know, I, I would make the argument that, you know, physicians and, you know, clinical folks are in the business of people, you know, making people happy, healthy, and whole, treating their issues. And I would also make the same argument for our legislators, you know, who are representing their constituents' issues across the states and in local communities and in Washington with healthcare regulations and the market of healthcare and the business of healthcare being so regulated. What do you see as the role of policy in terms of really helping to close some of these health equity gaps that are facing a lot of the populations that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, policy is critical to this. Part of it is, and we have seen this play out as, as it pertains to COVID and the, and the pandemic. Um, unless we create policy that has, that brings health equity to the forefront, um, it can't be something that we discuss on the side. It has to be that we're looking at, we're using the data to drive our decision-making and to, and to drive our resource allocation. I think prior to COVID, it had been this, you know, well, it's those people over there, right? And so we don't have to, that's not always included in the policies that we see, or there'll be a separate policy, but it became very clear that we're all connected. So if a, if a community that's primarily black and brown has a high rate of, of COVID infections, that's impacting everyone else. And there's no way that we can pull these things apart. We're all interacting on a day-to-day -day basis, whether or not that's in a workplace situation or in a hospital setting. And so it became very clear that the policy has to be inclusive of all populations in order to ensure the health of everyone. And so policy is critical to that. Policies, when I think about sort of equity in all policies, we should be, all of our data should be focused on what are the differences? Where are the inequities? Where are the barriers? And we hadn't had such a focus on that prior to the pandemic. I mean, there had been some, and we had been talking about social determinants of health and yep. understanding all of the different aspects that impact different populations. But I, in, in particularly in my role at the Demic Center, I'd always encountered this us and them mentality. And so it was sort of, you have, you know, people who are not um, of, you know, black and brown uh, ethnic origins really not seeing themselves in the issues that are impacting those populations. You see the 20, 30 year life expectancy difference between Back Bay and Roxbury. And it was just, it was, it was understood, but not uh, involved in, in how we think about policy and in policy conversations. That's starting to shift. And so to answer your question, policy is absolutely critical to addressing health inequities. And part of it is demanding that we are looking at the data and acting upon the data as we think about resource allocation, as we create programs and initiatives. And to the earlier point that we were talking about, that everything we do becomes sustainable. 
You know, it's so interesting. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the, you know, the 30 year life expectancy discrepancy between, you know, some areas of Roxbury and Back Bay. And when you think about from an oral health perspective, I think about how that area is primarily a food desert, you know, in terms of access to uh, a grocery store that's nearby, when you think oh, about yeah. the, the transit that goes into the area, you know, how are, if we're thinking about food as medicine, how do you mm -hmm. access these services if you if they're not actually located in your own communities? And then you have to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of work on that when I was at the Demic Center. And part of what we lifted up was, you know, bringing healthy foods. And we worked with um, some organizations to bring, you know, vegetables, fresh vegetables at a lower cost point to, to the community. And then that still goes on today. But those are real considerations as we think about health. Like health isn't just, you know, going to a doctor and, and treating your physical ailments or even going to a dentist. But to your point, it's nutrition. It's all of these different components that we need to be taking into account as we think about a person's journey in their lifetime. And having a broader understanding of what that means and how we can impact it is critical to how we develop policy, to how we educate. I mean, even thinking about the example that I gave earlier of young kids having, you know, cavities and having and getting put to sleep, educating the moms about what do you put in a baby's bottle, right? If you put soda or juice in a baby's bottle and you put them to sleep with that bottle, that sugar is sitting on their teeth. That's how the cavities, but if you don't have access to, you know, fresh milk or you don't have, and it's not at the right price point and, and soda and all these other things become cheaper, then that's what that's, that's as a mom and you're trying to give your kids some level of sustenance, you're going to go for the cheaper things. And so it's how do we make sure that we are not only educating, but providing access to those healthier options that is part of the responsibility of the healthcare community. Can I ask, you know, uh, in preparation for the show, I was looking over your site and I saw that, you know, almost 77 million Americans don't, American adults don't have dental health insurance, you yeah. know, and almost 56 million live in areas that are short on dental professionals. Mm -hmm. You know, things like the Tuskegee experiment are real, the stigma that communities of color, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities are facing around accessing health services from a broad perspective, particularly in the pandemic, are stemmed from real things that have happened <laughs> that have been sanctioned oh, yeah. by the American government. Oh, yeah. How do how do we how do we or how do you imagine us really solving for that trust issue in terms of getting folks out into the communities and really accessing these essential services? Well, I think there has to be, I mean, there's so many different, um, it's such a layered and complex question, but a few things, having providers that look like you, right, that you can trust. And mm. that was part of the work that we did at the community health center. And that's such, it's such a, um, a role that community health centers play in every community in which they sit is being that entity where people can go and find people that look like them and can trust them. And so even we saw how community health centers were leveraged in the pandemic and continue to be leveraged in the pandemic as sources of information of places where people can go to get help um, and to get the, um, the treatment that they need and deserve. But I, I think that's a big component of it. Um, I think, uh, you know, really being, making sure that the information that we put out there um, is authentic and is at the right literacy levels is also important. Um, yes. That we also train our providers to treat patients as if they are partners as opposed to this hierarchy. Um, you know, as I, when I did practice medicine, um, one of the things that was really important to me is that I was real with my patients, that I was authentic in my interactions and that we were making decisions together. It wasn't me saying you need to do this because I don't know the context of when you leave my doctor's office 
what happens in your home unless we are in partnership and we can actually have real and transparent conversations about like what are your barriers. Also treating people holistically and understanding how important mental health is as we think about all of these um, all of these components of health. So I think that there's a, a number of things that we can do to, to, to enhance the trust that people of color in particular have uh, with the healthcare system, but part of it is being able to see themselves. And so I feel really privileged to, to be in this space and to be able to do some of that. And to, as I said earlier, to bring others along with me in that journey, um, making sure that they have those opportunities to connect back as well. With, with at King Boston, some of the, with the work that we're doing, we're going into 2022 and we're preparing for our first uh, Embrace Ideas Festival. And one of the days that we are having is really based around healing. And it, and it sounds like from what you're saying that we, we have to kind of take a real holistic approach to health and healing because the healing is multiple levels. Because I know that, you know, oral health, obviously we talked about the, the physical things in terms of your, your physical well-being, but also I would imagine there's a, a level of impact on your mental health as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we I see, particularly um, when I was at Demick, uh, the number of patients who had substance use disorder who had neglected their health yep. and who had poor oral health you know, your ability to smile and to show your teeth, that's a way, well, before we started all the mask wearing, that was the way in which we interacted, right? And so if you can't show your teeth and you're embarrassed, um, that prevents you from getting a job, that because that's the first thing that people used to see before we were wearing masks. And so it's such a critical aspect of how we see ourselves, um, it, as well as, you know, our being able to eat and provide, you know, nutrition to our bodies. Um, but there are so many components, of, and if you're in pain, and yep. you're in pain day to day because you have oral health. Um, if you're worried about having to have a tooth pulled because you can't afford preserving the tooth, like all of those things impact our mental health. And I know a day of healing is, you know, I, I've participated in those types of events before, often it really centers in on mental health and all of the ways in which mental health is impacted by our physical health, um, because it's such a core part of how we operate, being of sound mind and sound body. Um, is our health, right? And so we have to address that and create the open space for people to be able to talk about that and to be able to share education, information, um, such, such that our communities can, um, can advance. But, you know, historically, we also, you know, understand that people of color didn't often talk about mental health. We, you know, it was, it was, it's been so refreshing to see that conversation shift and to, and to have people become more transparent about it. But that's something that we also have to address within our community. It was, it's been seen as a weakness. It continues to be in, in many regards. Um, and, and how do we sort of lift that up and, 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 and allow people to have a sense of vulnerability and to, and to see that as a strength as, a, as opposed to a weakness? You know, it's so interesting thinking um, for me about what my experience has been like at the dentist. You know, I've had some teeth pulled. I had braces at one point, but I've always liked going to the dentist. Some, you know, not everyone enjoys going to the dentist, but I think about also, you know, that aspect of the, the drugs that are related to, you know, like the dental experience and how, you know, for folks to the point that you just raised around mental health, like when you're, when you're going through something that's difficult and you have access to like heavy prescription grade narcotics that can also impact your experience, mm. it, it, it shouldn't be easier to get narcotics than actually getting preventative services. Yeah. You know, like we should, we should be able to make sure that people are happy and well. And I really appreciated the point that you just raised around how we, 
have lost almost two years of connection physically in terms of smiling at people, yeah. connecting yeah. and being being able to read facial gestures. And it, it makes the experience of even going into a clinical setting difficult when you yeah. have to walk in, put on maybe a, a dentist or a hospital certified mask, sit mm-hmm. there and then have that that adapted experience where we're all trying to mitigate the spread of the of the virus, but also still get treated so yeah. that we can be whole, whole and healthy in our communities. Yeah, you're, you're so right. I will let you in on a secret. Going to the dentist is not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> I'm in the camera. I'm like, no. But uh, I think it's also because most of the time I, we have this association of having to get things done as opposed to prevention. Mm, yep. So I think if we had had, if I had had the experience of really working with my primary care provider, like my primary care provider growing up, never mentioned oral health. Never, I don't even think mm. they looked in my mouth, right? If you think about going to a dentist, I mean, a, your primary care provider and getting a physical, how often do they look at your mouth or even ask you about your teeth, right? right? Like that's like, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's really incredible. And in being a physician, you're not trained that way. And so I think, you know, having a greater focus, and that's also the work that we are putting out there is, if we can get these things addressed, if we can get fluoride application done within the pediatric office, if we can get all of these things addressed, you really shouldn't have to have these intense, painful procedures yeah. as an adult or as a young child because you would have focused on prevention and therefore your experience of going to the dentist is different. It becomes much more of a pleasant experience because you know you're going for prevention as opposed to, to a painful procedure happening to you. And I think the other piece that we've lifted up is, you know, to your point about the narcotics, that was a, is and was a major factor in the opioid epidemic of this, you know, and it wasn't just dentists, it was many professionals, medical mm-hmm. professionals overprescribing. Um, and I remember in my training, um, you know, being, you know, the pharmaceutical reps coming in and saying, well, you know, just prescribe this and your patients won't have pain. Like we used to be gauged as to whether or not we were treating a patient adequately if we, were, if we were managing their pain, there used to be something called the pain scale that a physician would have to rate how well you were managing a patient's pain. And if you weren't managing their pain well, you weren't a good physician. And what that translated into doing was more prescriptions for opioids. So that was, I was part of you know, the training of physicians where that became a focus and the pharmaceutical reps honed in on that and said, well, you're not treating your patients well, you should be prescribing them Oxycontin or Oxycodone because when I was initially um, in practice, we only prescribed those medications for cancer patients. Like you never prescribed oxycodone for a patient for back pain or for a a toothache. It was, it it really happened in that place of this, you know, vital sign being introduced of the pain scale. Um, And then the opioid epidemic just kind of took off from there. Um, And we also know that, you know, the, the epidemic of substance use disorder impacted communities of color well before it became okay to talk about, right? And so it was, you know, that's another area of health inequity that we've lifted up um, in our work, only at, not only with CareQuest, but also prior to that epidemic of, you know, it was criminalized. People were, you know, I remember people saying, you know, calling people derogatory names, crackhead and this and that, because we didn't have an understanding of what substance use disorder was. And it was seen as sort of an issue for people of color and no one else. But the opioid epidemic really opened our eyes to um, the fact that it is a disorder and that addiction doesn't mean you're a criminal. Addiction means that you have a medical issue just as much as diabetes. And so we have to really think, rethink the way that we're treating that as well. So lots of complexities involved in that. 
Um, but I think the more we can educate ourselves um, and empower our communities to have voice in, in how we're thinking about healthcare transformation, the better off we all will be. And I'm curious, you know, we've seen some healthcare innovations happening where, you know, payers and insurance providers are now reimbursing for things like yoga classes and yes. gym memberships. And, you know, it's really great to see the payers taking uh, a care and a prevention based perspective by treating folks holistically. I'm curious what that looks like in the oral health space. You know, I, I think I'd seen folks talking about some potential televisits with my dentist and I'm like, can I do this online? What are, what are some of the things happening? Yeah, so I think there's some incredible innovation um, and we are really excited to be at the forefront and in investing in companies and startups that are doing this work. There's innovation in um, diagnosing early caries. Like we're investing in some companies that have come up with treatments where you can apply things to the teeth that show caries or, or cavities much earlier than a dentist with the, with the x-ray can actually see them. Oh, wow. We're also investing in companies that... Um, have developed treatments that prevent caries from, if you have a cavity, prevent it from continuing on to the point where you need to sort of do the drill and fill. Um, we also have invested in a teledentistry company um, where we are, to your point, able to provide visits. So if you are deciding whether or not to go to wait to go to emergency room or to wait to see your provider, you can connect with an oral health provider online using your, your phone or using um, your computer and they can sort of understand like how what is the pain how is it you know being treated because if you imagine when you go to the emergency room all they're doing is giving you the same thing that could virtually be done virtually right they're having a conversation with you they may look but they generally are not going to be able to treat your mm. oral health issue within the emergency room so they're sending you off with a pain medication and telling you to call your your dentist the next day that can be done virtually we can also send um, dental hygienists and other ancillary providers to the home, have them work with the patient, examine the patient, and then send those images to a dentist. Oh, so wow. a dentist can actually see more than one patient by working through these ancillary providers. So it provides access, particularly in rural areas of using teledentistry in that way. So there's lots of really interesting innovation that's happening. We also, through our CareQuest Innovation Partners Company, which is a for-profit entity, we're lifting up an innovation hub where we're encouraging startups to help us solve some of these issues within oral health and to help disrupt the current system of oral health care. So we'll be investing in startups that are coming up with novel solutions around oral health as well. So lots of exciting stuff. I would never have imagined that I would be in this space either. <laughs> you know, we think about what I'd be in Boston. I didn't think I would move into oral health, but for me, it became yet another area of healthcare that deserves attention, that deserves focus, that deserves research and exploration such that we can treat people holistically. And particularly, all, of course, top of mind for me are people that look like me and people that are um, un underserved and marginalized. And that includes our elderly. We know that mm -hmm. Medicare doesn't include oral health benefits. So you turn 65, you have no oral health care. And so, and a lot of folks don't know that. Um, you have no access to that. And you would be paying out of pocket most of the time you're retired. So you don't have a job that's going to pay for that. Wow. And so part of what we've been doing on, on an advocacy level, and we do a lot of advocacy, is working with our federal legislators to include oral health and Medicare. It failed this round, but we got further than we ever have with this new administration. And then we're working across the country with different states about the inclusion of oral health benefits in Medicaid. In many states, it's just emergency-only care. So there's no prevention that's covered by Medicaid. And so we really want to focus in on that because it really makes no sense that you would cover emergency only care, which is more expensive 
than prevention. And so we are creating the cases for that and working with a number of states to help push legislation and to leverage community organizations within those states to be able to push legislation for including prevention within Medicaid. Now, as I was listening, you talk about those innovations and I was wondering, and I think Reggie alluded to it earlier, is there a shortage in, in terms of um, dentists, in terms of people who are actually in the field? And is yes. that something that, you know, that I guess would I would imagine that some of your work is addressing that shortage? Yeah, we work with organizations that are focused on improving workforce. I mean, that's, a, that's happening across the field. And even more so now, you see providers in all fields of medicine dropping out, right? With COVID, mm. people are exhausted. People are, there's a nursing shortage, there's a provider shortage. So we're seeing that across the board. It's only been amplified by COVID, but certainly within the oral health profession, there is a shortage of providers. So we're working with, you know, some of the academic institutions to be able to expand the workforce, to expand the scope of practice of ancillary providers, just like you have nurse practitioners and physician assistants who are able to expand their scope such that it's not just dependent on on any provider, but you have multiple providers who can help improve access for all populations. That's something that we're doing within the oral health field as well. Uh, You know, I'm really excited about oral health after this conversation, which is, <laughs> you know, thinking about now how. Now you talk about all of your friends. Like, have you had some prevention? I mean, right. Like, have you gone to your two your two times a year checkups? And that, that comment that you made about Medicare is really shocking. I had no clue that after a certain point, you know, all of these benefits being linked to your employer, I can only imagine what those challenges look like for, you know, mixed immigration status households or for oh, individuals boy. who might have lost a job during the pandemic and might have been ready for that checkup. But now all of those things have kind of halted. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's 65. That's it. And you think about un- people that, you know, black and brown communities, what that means for our elderly. Often that means they have to make a choice. That's when you see people, you know, no longer have being able to maintain their teeth and you see people Mm. moving towards dentures and dentures and all of those other, um, uh, I won't call them treatments, but they are incredibly expensive, right? You know, dental health is so expensive, even when you have insurance and just imagine the choices you have to make as a 65 year old who's on, you know, fixed income, whether or not you can repair your teeth or not, right? And then you then move, if you lose your teeth, what are you then able to eat? How many people have you come across within our communities who they can't have, you know, they can't eat a burger, they can't eat hard foods, and you see them eating soft foods. And what does that, what does that mean for your quality of life when you've worked your entire life, you hit 65, you lose your teeth, you lose your ability to maintain your dentition? How does that feel? How does that impact you mentally, right? You, you know, I'm sure you, there are the folks in all of our families where you see them around the table who have no teeth. And, and, and we, you know, it just becomes a norm for us but it doesn't have to be that way. And that's part of what, um, as a community, when we understand that and empower ourselves, we can we can make change. And speaking of making change, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of change happening in our elected official makeup here in greater Boston and now coming up for in, in 2022 with the gubernatorial race. I'm curious, are there any oral or health priorities that you're really looking for these new administrations or for, you know, like regional regional candidates to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of the um, our previous mayor's uh, COVID-19 task force and, and really brought forth the, the notion that was when we were thinking about vaccine distribution, that 
oral health providers are constantly giving needles, why wouldn't we include them in the providers that can administer the vaccine? So we did a lot of work to ensure that oral health providers were included in some of the emergency measures uh, for providers to be able to administer vaccines. Um, also, when it came to, um, I was part of one of the, the Senate's um, task force on healthcare inequities, bringing forth um, the, the notion of the inequities within oral health and how we think about um, leveraging um, our policymakers to be able to be inclusive of oral health as we think about resource allocation. Um, the other is really around um, ensuring that oral health providers are, are able to continue to use telemedicine to be able to administer visits. And so uh, advocating for that on a policy level. And then, as I mentioned earlier, around benefits for our Medicaid, ensuring that prevention main, is maintained as part of the benefits for Medicaid. Um, and then on a larger national level, again, the whole discussion that we continue to have around Medicare and then also for veterans. Veterans often have very poor access to oral health providers in the VA system and really thinking about how do we make sure that our veterans who have done so much for our country and have had so many traumatic experiences in serving our country, the last thing that they should have to suffer from is, is losing, losing their teeth and not having access to oral health. So those are some of the things that, we work, that we're working on from a policy and um, legislative perspective. And for, and for our listeners, Maisha, what can folks do to educate and, and share the good wealth of oral health in their communities with their families? You know, how can, how can folks get involved in helping to change, change the state of care for folks? I mean, I think first and foremost, recognize that oral health is part of our overall health. You know, question your providers about, you know, about your, um, about their working with you to make sure you have access to prevention. Obviously go to see your dentist and, and make sure that particularly for our young children, that they have early access to oral health, that we are teaching them how to brush their teeth well, making sure that we're not putting sugary substances in a baby's bottle. No one needs to drink juice ever. Like there is like, we don't need juice in our lives, right? So juice and sweet and sugar, all of that, even if it's just orange juice, sits on the teeth and provide and provides the, the flora for cavities to happen. So we wanna make sure that we are um, accessing educational information, sharing that with one another, talking with our folks who will become 65 and above about what are you, how are you gonna maintain your oral health, investigating the solutions and the benefits that would allow them to have access to prevention and, and maintain the care for their teeth. So just making this part of the conversation, as we do for everything else, we should be talking with one another about colon cancer screening, about breast cancer screening, like that. Yep. Those are the types of things, prostate cancer screening, that we need to continue to focus on within our communities and make it part of the conversation around the table. Um, those are things that are, are really critically important to our overall health and to our mental health. And so just having those conversations around the table with your friends, with your family um, is really important. Well, I think our conversation today is actually um, one step in the right direction because I am blown away with how much I've learned yeah. um, from talking to you. Thank you so much. And um, I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. Thank you for having me. It was great. It was a great discussion. Time flew by, so I appreciate that. That means you're always in a good discussion when time is just, you know, flying by. But uh, I appreciate the opportunity and, and this great questions. And thank you so much for bringing this to our people and, and, and making this important health part of the conversation. 
Thank, Thank you. you. And, I, and that means we're going to have to draft you to be a part of the Embrace Festival. I'm sure. I'm sure you will be getting a a, ca a call from our ED. At oh, I already have. <laughs> <laughs> See, there we go. Well, Dr. Reinshit, Ninja Jordan, thank you so much. Um, and for individuals interested in finding out more about CareQuest, you can visit carequest.org for more information. That's right. We'll catch y'all next time on Good Trouble. <laughs>